HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Carp Resources, carpresources.com. I'm Tim Gunn, author, educator, and Project Runway mentor, and you're listening to Heritage Radio. Welcome to Magnifico Radio, the weekly podcast featuring conversations in ethical fashion, clean beauty, and sustainable living. I'm your host, Kate Black, and if you're listening live on the Heritage Radio Network, that means it's Monday at 1 o'clock here in Brooklyn. Each week I sit down with designers, makers, and leaders in sustainability to discuss their paths and motivation. This podcast is an extension of my blog, Magnifico.com, and that's Magnifico.com, and my book, also called Magnifico, Your Head-to-Toe Guide to Ethical Fashion and Non-Toxic Beauty. March 22nd is World Water Day. Designated by the United Nations in 1993, it's our day to celebrate water, to celebrate its importance to our existence, to acknowledge members of the global population who suffer from water-related issues, and to prepare for how we will manage water in the future. Water care is relevant in both the fashion and beauty industries. In addition to the myriad of chemicals both industries use and create as byproducts and runoff, for the last several years, there's been a growing concern about microbeads and microfibers. It's estimated that there will be one ton of plastic for every three tons of fish in our ocean by 2025, and by 2050, the total mass by weight of plastic in our oceans will overtake that of fish. So today, to honor water and its protection, I'm joined by Steve Wilson, Campaigns Director at the Story of Stuff Project. Most of you have undoubtedly seen the original Story of Stuff, an animated documentary about the life cycle of material goods that was released in 2007. The project has gone on to become a community of more than a million changemakers worldwide working to build a more healthy and just planet. Their latest video, called The Story of Microfibers, is meant to highlight the growing concern about tiny bits of fiber being shed by our clothes in the wash and ending up in watersheds in the sea. Hello, Stiv. Welcome. Hey, thanks for having me, Kate. It's such a pleasure. So the new video tries to highlight the issue of my microfibers. When and how did the story of stuff become aware and get involved? Well, it sort of backtracks over a decade. Um, I've been working on the issue of, of plastics in the ocean for a very long time and increasingly on microplastics. Uh, when we did uh, the story of microbeads, which was a video um, attached to a campaign to eliminate uh, plastic microbeads from personal care products, um, 
that sort of was, I would, I would say, the whipping boy for microfibers. The, the public imagination really didn't understand plastic pollution in our watershed as a, a tiny problem, as a small microplastic problem. It was sort of uh, framed in, in the sense of uh, big pieces of plastic and big animals eating big plastic. But increasingly, um, scientists are really concerned about the small stuff because it can enter the food chain at the very beginning. So as we had a successful microbeads campaign to pass uh, federal legislation, I was really keen for us to tell another story um, about a bigger threat. And why is microfibers a bigger threat? Well, according to um, uh, a recent IUCN report, they estimated that about 2% of primary microplastics, and what I mean by primary is they're small when they get into the water. They didn't break down from larger pieces. Uh, 2% was microbeads, and they're estimating that 33% is microfibers. So it's at least uh, a degree of scale bigger uh, of an issue. And and it's it's true. I think a lot of people kind of overlook that because they were focused for a long time on the gyre. And you worked, um, before you joined the Story of Stuff, you were also involved with the research at the gyre, the communications and policy director for the Five Gyres Institute. So can you can you just kind of walk us through the bigger problem and maybe some things that people are aware of or maybe some of my listeners aren't even aware of what the gyre is and, and what the kind of what the ocean plastic discussion looks like? Sure. So, yeah, I um, worked at the Five Gyres Institute, and I still work pretty closely um, with the founders of that organization on plastic issues. Uh, And starting in about the beginning of 2010, we aimed to sail around the world, um, and literally on a sailboat, sail around the world, sampling the ocean surface every 50 miles or so, um, to get a baseline recording of how much plastic was in the ocean. Um, five gyres is called five gyres because there are five major gyres. And for the purposes of, of understanding this simple term, just think of it as a giant whirlpool. Um, in, in the North Pacific, for example, it's you know bigger than North America. And what forms these gyres is you have the trade winds, um, at a, that oppose at higher and lower latitudes. And because those winds are traveling uh, over a rotating sphere, a.k.a. Mother Earth, um, they bend because of the Coriolis effect. So that energy is transferred to water, which creates these giant uh, whirlpools. Now, that's a natural thing. However, what happens is flotsam, that is jettisoned from land or ships, uh, often will end up in these whirlpools, and it's like a bathtub without a drain. So as you get towards the center, it gets denser and denser. But having been to four of the five gyres, you know, it's not like a trash island, uh, the way it's been portrayed in the media often. It's sort of, I've read some articles that say, like, you know, you possibly navigate to it and tie up and walk around, and it's, it's not like that at all. It's, it's, it's much more insidious. It's like a plastic soup, um, or as Five Gyres calls it, a smog of microplastics. So when we did this study, we estimated that there was 5.25 trillion particles over 280,000 metric tons of plastic in the ocean. 
And, you know, those are startling numbers, um, and they're incomprehensible numbers. I mean, there, there's more plastic in the ocean uh, than there are stars in the Milky Way galaxy, for example, to, to give you an idea of scale. Um, but 95% of those plastics are smaller than a grain of rice. Uh, and this is why we're increasingly concerned about microplastics and I um, think... originating. Sorry. No, go on. Go ahead. There you go. Uh, just saying we're increasingly worried about um, microplastics being shed from fossil fuel-derived synthetic clothing. Well, and I think that you've kind of hit on the point because I think when people started to um, talk about the five gyres, people were thinking more like big plastic. They were thinking bottles and things that had been jettisoned or blown out and um, like from trash runoff and, and river runoff. But I don't think that they realize that it's being broken down. Plus, we're also consumers are responsible for putting in all of these tiny micro fibers um, and microbeads. So can you talk about how you how you gain traction and how you actually force change for the microbeads ban? Sure. I mean, originally um, approached some of the largest manufacturers uh, of those products, which were uh, Unilever, Procter & Gamble, Johnson & Johnson. And they, they uh, before to be honest, they sort of had varying degrees of, of their head in the sand and, and not really wanting to recognize that this was a significant contribution. Uh, and they came forward saying, you know, they would, after pressure and uh, a lot of petitioning uh, and engagement, said that they would voluntary, voluntarily phase them out. However, they wanted to replace it with another kind of plastic, um, not with natural ingredients. So at this point, we took a legislative stance. And that was, uh, uh, you know, starting in, in New York and California. Uh, and we were ultimately successful after two years in California in passing a ban that unequivocally said you can't put plastic in these products. Uh, and industry was trying to pass another bill uh, that was sort of hoodwinking uh, state legislators of where it originated from. It was actually written by industry. And they passed this one in Illinois that left an exemption for so-called biodegradable plastics and, without defining what they meant by biodegradable. And, you know, that term is used really quickly and, um, and, and often uh, by producers. And, and I guess, you know, the way to characterize that is everything's biodegradable. I mean, you know, uranium and plutonium is biodegradable, but it, it's whether it's in a meaningful time frame. And so we didn't like that bill, so we stuck to our, uh, stuck to our guns and passed some progressive uh, laws in Connecticut uh, as well as California. And because California is such a big market, we knew the producers would have to follow that policy uh, because, they're, you know, they're not going to make uh, products for one market versus another, uh, just the way their supply chain worked. And so ultimately, when the feds got interested, what the producers wanted more than anything was uniformity over the bills. And what we were doing uh, at the state level and even at the county level in, in, in New York State, we worked at the county level, was ultimately to pass slightly different policies to give us leverage for any sort of federal bill. 
uh, and we said unequivocally when we negotiated that bill in Washington, D.C., we said, we'll give you preemption of states, but you have to give us the, the, the language around um, what we want environmentally, um, or it's no deal. We'll, we'll be happy to stay with the California bill because it's a de facto federal bill. So it was about four and a half years from discovery of microbes in the Great Lakes on an expedition I was on there to ultimately uh, banning them from products. And and congratulations on that. It's so it's so amazing. And it's kind of I think it's surprising for some people that it would take four years for something that really is so benign. It, like they're added. They don't really even need to be in product. They're kind of this superficial expectation that consumers want some sort of abrasion. And, hey, let's make it out of plastic without kind of any oversight for the end result. So I think it's amazing that you were able to tackle that from the top down. So let's talk about microfibers. And are you are you using the same strategy? Do you have the same, do you have some learnings that you got from microbeads? Sure. I mean, I think the biggest learning is that the public's actually really interested in the, the threat of microplastics. They, they seem to uh, be really uneasy with just disseminating trillions and trillions of particles of plastic throughout the ocean. Um, so we've captured the imagination to some degree. Uh, I think it's, it's a much more complicated problem because 98% of all fiber, and, and, and when I say fiber, I'm, I'm talking like carpet, textiles, uh you know, curtains, drapes, whatever, is synthetic, is made from polyester, acrylic, nylon. Um, and in clothing, it's 60% of all clothing is polyester. And so it's a much, much bigger problem to tackle. And it's going to be one that's uh, pretty hard to legislate because we're, you know, essentially we would have to say, you no longer can produce polyester clothing. And, you know, this has a lot of implications in the supply chain. It has implications for uh, recycling markets because the number one thing that plastic water bottles are, uh, or soda bottles are turned into is clothing. And a lot of uh, uh, brands look at this as a sustainability initiative to recycle uh, plastic bottles and the clothes, and we sort of look at this as you're entrenching one bad design to create another bad design um, that has a massive leakage into the you know into the our shared waters. And so I think you know we're we're, we're as we look at the host of solutions, you know where we stand at Story of Stuff Project is it's the responsibility of a producer. And trying to pass the buck on, you know, trying to get people to filter their washing machine effluent. Um, there's 103 million washing machines in the United States alone. And so, one, if you legislated filter your washing machine effluent, you could never enforce it. I mean, that's, and, and to an environmental advocate, you never want to pass a policy you can't enforce because. Barring having the microfibers police go door to door to look at your washing machine, um, you know, we're, we're never going to get that many users of washing machines to religiously filter th their effluent. So it's, 
we have to look at the, the textile manufacturers themselves and say, hey, your products can't shed. And if they do shed, you're going to have to pay to make sure that wastewater treatment is capturing this, which, you know, is a massive infrastructure uh, undertaking. Okay, we're going to take a break and then we're going to come back and break down some of this because you've just given us a ton of information and I want to kind of, I want to put it into a few bite-sized pieces for the listeners. So we'll be right back. Resources is proud to be a member of the business community that supports Heritage Radio Network. CARP Resources solves food problems. Our mantra is good food is good business, and it's our mission to help you connect the two. From designing regional sourcing strategies and sustainability plans to developing cutting edge food curricula, we customize your approach to changing the food environment in your communities, marketplaces, or within your own organizations. Our diverse team of thinkers and practitioners apply honed methodologies and tactical experience to each challenge and opportunity. Our unparalleled cross-sector network expands your own, whether you are a philanthropic organization, a community college, a global food distributor, or a children's museum. To learn more, please visit carpresources.com. And we're back. You're listening to Magnifico Radio, and I'm your host, Kate Black. And today we're talking water with Steve Wilson. So, Steve, you were talking about polyesters um, just before we took the break. And I know that pa- um, Patagonia came out, was one of the first ones to come publicly um, with their study and revealed kind of what they had learned about their own polyester-based jackets. Um, and you and I both sit on the EPA's Trash-Free Waters um, Committee. And although I don't think we've been at meetings at the same time, we know that the that they're trying to um, cure curate all of the research projects around the world to kind of get a better understanding. And my, my, my understanding is that one of our members in that, in that committee has research that shows that it's not just polyester that's showing up in the water. It's also um, cotton fibers and other um, natural fibers. So, so this is kind of a bigger issue. And you don't think that legislating washing machines or trying to put it back into consumers' hands is, is a solution? No, I think, you know, uh, our founder, Annie Leonard, has a saying in the original Story of Stuff book, when you're sort of scratching your head and trying to figure out how to solve a problem and you can't find a solution, that's a metal detector for a flawed system. And in order to create a transformative solution, you need to change the system itself. And, you know, look, we... Plastic pollution, chemical pollution, climate change, you know, we're never going to solve these problems by turning off the lights and, you know, making sure we have air pressure um, in, in our tires or, you know, refusing um, uh, uh, plastic clothes. The, the, the big issue is that we need collective action to change the system. And, you know, you mentioned washing machines. For one, it's not the washing machine manufacturer's fault. It's what you put in there. 
Cotton and natural fibers are natural. Mother Nature knows how to break them down. They are not seen as persistent fibers um, in the environment. They may have some implication, but certainly not at the level that uh, synthetic um, plastic-derived fibers do. So, you know, ultimately, I think it goes back to... to you know how how do you how do you ultimately change the system and i think 103 million washing machines is a really bad place to start now i appreciate what patagonia did in their study very much um it was also five years after they knew what the problem was so i think they were looking to characterize it um with their own products and i think that's a good first step but it's only a first step if and, and that's how i would characterize it and so, like, and the problem is, I, I see it kind of multifold. It's like, number one, nobody wants to be eating uh, marine life or fish that have plastic residue inside. And, and you're in the, in the, um, in the documentary and some of the literature, it's starting to say, like, let's, let's be conscious about this. And as you speak, I'm like, yeah, I think I would rather eat a fish that's eaten cotton than a fish that's eaten um, petroleum-based product. But the other issue is that we're really trying to stress in the sustainable fashion world, we're trying to st- stress um, longevity as a solution. And so we're asking people to maybe think about adding wares and, and wearing things longer than the typical seven wares that they're doing and keeping things longer and longer. So we're we're sitting on closet fulls of potential problems. So how fast do you think the legislation can solve this? Well, again, I think, you know, I can't really characterize how, what kind of legislation or how quickly it would solve the problem because, again, it's an enforcement issue with, with, with this type of legislation. With microbeads, you're stopping it at the source. You're saying it's not going to be in the product, so the product won't pollute. With with uh, synthetic fibers, uh, it would be very difficult to pass a bill because you're talking about a global trillion-dollar, uh, you know, multi-trillion-dollar enterprise, um, which is fashion and textiles writ large, and and so. You know, I'm not ready yet to take a legislative approach. If the companies don't figure out how to keep their products from polluting on the front end, then that's something uh, I would look at to, to ban synthetic fabric. And how do you feel about things like the Guppy Friend, this little washable bag that um, Patagonia has partnered with to sell with their product? Yeah, so Guppy Friend came on the scene from a Kickstarter uh um, effort, and um, from what I understand, Patagonia funded about uh, $100,000 of that project uh, to give a, the consumers a choice um, at point of purchase that said, hey, you know, our products um, have the potential to pollute, and if you wash them in this bag, uh, then, y- you know, you can stop that fiber pollution. And I think that's, you know, that's a nice first step for consumers, but again, it's a matter of scale. 103 million washing machines in the United States. Uh, what percentage of people will religiously use a filter bag that costs thirty dollars to purchase, above and beyond, you know, what your clothing purchase is? Um, I'm I'm saying you might get 
0.00001% of users to religiously use something like this. Um, so I think it's, you know, it's interesting and it's, it's, it's innovative. But again, you know, how many people will actually adopt it? In my experience, very, very few. And because it is Water Week and we're celebrating water and you grew up in the land of 10,000 lakes and I also grew up in the land of tons of fresh water, how optimistic are you about our, as a species, our ability to kind of fix this problem and stem these issues? Well, I mean, I, how optimistic? That's, you know, I think generally, uh, I think these are solvable problems. I think you run into trouble a bit with, with you know, profits and, and externalizing um, the cost of, of the goods we consume on the environment. That's really hard to beat economically. I mean, if you put it this way, the cheapest way to get rid of trash is to legally dump it. And you're never going to beat that economic paradigm, um, whether it's recycling, landfill, whatever, because it's just the cheapest uh, uh, cheapest way to, to throw things away. Well, what we're learning is everything's connected, and there is no way. So, um, you know, at this point, I would like to see the clothing manufacturers take this more seriously. Um, they do have some working groups, um, albeit small, and they, they haven't really come up with solutions uh, that are actionable other than asking their customers to filter, you know, their washing machine effluent. And, and, and I think if that is the strategy to solve this problem, we fail like hundreds of times over. If the strategy is to make products that don't pollute in the first place, then I think we win. And so, and, we say this on this show all the time, like the consumers hold all the power, the, the choices that we make with our dollars, how we spend our dollars kind of contributes to the type of world that we want to see. So right off the bat, you are asking people to sign the petition and kind of raise the flag that, that they understand or are, have become aware of the microfibers issue. Is that correct? That's correct. And so where can they do that? Uh, you can do that at storyofstuff.org. It's one of our featured posts, and please sign the petition. And what we're going to use that petition for is leverage with the brands. We are going to approach the world's largest um, clothing brands and uh, try and get some commitments from them to, to take this issue seriously, to be very transparent about the, solution, the solutions they propose, and to commit to some sort of timeline for not just mitigating uh, the problems that the products cause, but to eliminate it. I mean, this, this, this issue is so vast and so big that even if you stopped 50% of the pollution, you know, in two years' time, you still have 100% pollution. So it, it, it's not something that we can solve by incrementalism. 
I agree. I totally agree. And, and it's not that we're without it because there's so much innovation, there's so much research. And so, um, I think that we need to just move this, this innovation in textile development further and faster and quicker. Um, and so signing the petition is one way to kind of rally our voices together. What are some of the other solutions? Like, what are you suggesting to your friends or, you know, I'm sure you're like me, people ask you all the time, what can I do? Um, so have you sworn off? of all synthetics? Are you only wearing natural fibers now? Uh, Yeah, so the the truth is, I live within this system as well, and if I were um, attempting to, you know, buy hemp or cotton clothing, it's increasingly more difficult. You know, the the only things you can do as as a consumer, or I like to say citizen rather than consumer, as a citizen, you can wash your clothes fewer times, um, it might be a good idea, too, to not buy a highly technical piece of outerwear um, meant for summoning Everest um, to just go to Starbucks. You know, I mean, like, make some choices about what you actually need this clothing for. Um, and, you know, we're, we're in a, a world where fashion is becoming, uh, you know, outdoor fashion is becoming just fashion writ large. And a lot of this clothing is not being used for the activities it's intended for or designed for. Um, but even then, you know, it's all the way down to underwear and, you know, socks and day-to-day yoga pants. All these sort of things are increasingly more synthetic. Uh, so, you know, what I would push for is, you know, looking at things like bamboo more seriously, and though you need some pretty nasty chemicals to break down the, the fibers to make them usable to be spun into yarn, you can actually do that in a closed-loop way where none of those chemicals uh, enter the environment, um, and you can recycle them and, and keep using them. Um, but we need to look at more sustainable feedstocks because the rule is if it's toxic in, it's going to be toxic out. You know, you, you can't, you don't lose toxicity um, if the material itself is problematic to begin with. As a process, we can't take toxicity out as a process. And I love. Uh- Obviously, you're not um, a yoga jeans for or a yoga um, pants for every every reason and every season. But there's kind of a campaign among fashionistas that yoga yoga apparel is not uh, street apparel and yoga yoga's yoga pants are not pants. Um, and it's true. There's a rise of athletic athleisure and athletic wear for everyday use. So I can see that consumer choices and, and how we're, we're choosing synthetics over and over and over again, even though we maybe don't need to wear them is definitely, um, is definitely rising. Um, and so how often do you wash your clothes? Well, now this is getting a little personal. Um, but, um, I, and I mean that as a joke, uh, you know, I, I wash my clothes once a week or so, but again, I, I try and avoid, for the most part, um, that uh, that clothing that is synthetic. And you know, for my durable goods, that I, I'm a sailor, uh, I spend a lot of time on the water, and you know, those fleeces and jackets they get washed maybe once a year, uh, if if that. Um, because, you know, they're not getting dirty to, to the degree that, that necessitates washing. Um, but, you know, we're, we're in a rise of 
everything is a threat. Germs are a threat. Dirt's a threat. Soil's a threat. Um, and, and so people, I think, um, are hypersensitive about cleanliness as well uh, to the degree that it's, you know, it's, it's delusional at times. So, um, you know, I try and do my part, but again, I, I'm going to say this uh, unequivocally, you can't really do anything about this as an individual in a, in a really big way. What I would say is if you really want to do something, band together with four or five of your friends, you know, someone who isn't afraid of speaking in public, someone who is good at organization, someone who is good at writing, and start approaching your legislators, um, your city councilors, your state representatives, your federal representatives, and call their offices, write them, and say, this is a problem. We need a policy to deal with it. And the same thing with brands. Write them. You know, because if these brands hear from many, many people, they will be forced to do something uh, because it will be a liability economically if they don't. And um, the only the only way to solve these problems is through constant pressure, endlessly applied. But but to think that you can, in your own home, solve a massive multinational global problem is uh, is isn't tenable. Um, you can do a little bit, um, but don't stop there. That's a, you know, using a thing like a guppy friend is a good place to start, but I want to see a world where we don't need the guppy friend. Great way to end this series. So tell again, what's the, what's the website where people can sign the petition? Yeah, please go to storyofstuff.org. Uh, watch our story of microfibers animated cartoon. It's short, just two and a half minutes. Um, and then once you finish that, there'll be a button at the end that says "Act Now" um, and sign our petition. That's great. Thank you to thank you, Steve, for coming on and and sharing all of this, on, especially during World Water Week. Um, I'd like to thank the Heritage Radio Network and especially Magnifico Radio Engineer David Tatashore, and thank you to Metro Jesus for the music and our new researcher Louisa Durkin. You can find and subscribe to Magnifico Radio on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you like what you hear, kindly give us a rating. It helps us rank higher amongst conventional fashion podcasts and push these conversations forward. Want to learn more about water issues in beauty and fashion and hundreds of other stories? Go to Magnifico.com or sign up for our newsletter. And if you have any feedback, questions, or want to be a sponsor or recommend a guest, kindly email me, radio at Magnifico.com. Until next week. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.